the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Anna Nelson, who is a software developer, writer, improv performer, and creator of Dexy, an open source tool for writing any kind of technical documentation that incorporates software code. Anna Nelson, I'm so delighted to have you on Maintainable. Welcome to the show. Hi, Robbie. Thank you. It's great to be here. To start things off, I'm going to ask a slightly modified version of one of the most typical questions I ask to start off my interviews. What do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable documentation? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think maintainable documentation, it is documentation that can be executed and tested. And one of the reasons I got really excited about the importance of documentation was at so many times working with open source software, getting stuck at Hello World because either the documentation didn't start at the beginning or it was out of date. And so I developed the philosophy that if you can't execute your documentation, it's already wrong. And when you say execute, is it like literally having the code that's inside your documentation be able to properly run and demonstrate that? Yeah, either that the code within your documentation can be executed or that your documentation is generated in an automated fashion from live code examples. And are you referring to things like, I don't know if you're familiar with in the Ruby world, there's like RSpec and like being able to like create some, generate some documentation and things like that? Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of tools have a variety of approaches and there's, there's a lot of different philosophies and approaches to this type of thing. So you can go back to sort of literate programming and, and no web and some of the LaTeX-based tools back in the day, which are still very much with us and very influential. Or yes, with stuff like RSpec and tools that are using testing and other frameworks that are giving you live examples. And I think there's a lot of different approaches. There's approaches that are specific to reference documentation, where it's going to give you automated API documentation. And I think any of those approaches, depending on what what type of documentation you need, can work really well. And it's great to find one that works with your project. And I think that often there's a need to you know, every project needs a variety of types of documentation, and each of those should be executable in some way to keep them up to date. So having a little, something a little bit more than maybe just having you copy pasting some bit of code into a Confluence doc or something. Totally. And, you know, when you copy paste, theoretically, that's assuming that you copy pasted from something where you were running it. But even the copy paste, if you're not in a white space preserving environment, that's not necessarily valid, especially in something like Python, where the white space is significant. Plus, it's a it's a manual step, which is never a good thing for a programmer. So do you reference like certain lines of code or something and like to a specific file and then it'll pull that code in or? Yeah. So, so obviously there's, there's sort of, I think two, two structural approaches and one is to be, you know, writing in a format where the entire thing is going to be parsed and processed in some way. And that's a lot of the sort of doc test or automated documentation where it'll take comments, for example, and turn those into the text and then do something with the code. The other approach, as you alluded to, is called a transclusion. And that is where you will find some way to reference code that's in another document and pull it into your documentation. And line numbers would be one way to do that, except that's going to be really rigid. And that means if your code changes, that line number might no longer be the right thing you're trying to point to. So a more general approach that we use in in Dexy that comes from some tools that Dexy was inspired by, we basically put a 
specially formatted comment in code that defines, hey, this is a section with, a, this is a label for this section of text, this section of code. Or if you've got a, something like Python where there's a lot of good language introspection, you can simply reference a function name. If you're parsing that language file, you can go find that function in the section of text around it. When you're working on your different projects and stuff, how do you work with teams to start adopting this type of thing? Or is this something that they're already kind of using kind of quite a bit? Because I know there's like in the Ruby community, we have like RDoc and things like that, where you can run those, you know, rake tasks, whatever, and it'll generate a directory of documentation. And admitted, like we take over a lot of Rails apps and very rarely do I see anything in there. So <laughs> it's like, I'm like, well, you could run that command at any point, I guess, and put it in there. But it's something that I've seen be baked into things, but not often used enough. And yeah, I think those, those automated tools that don't require any additional effort or not, not too much additional effort for programmers to use, I think that can be really helpful if you've got someone who's going to sort of make sure, oh, hey, let's, let's run this. I think documentation, it really comes down to that it's being used. And I think a great indicator for a team is to say, okay, is our documentation good enough and efficient enough that we're, we're using our own documentation ourselves to reference what we're doing? And if you're not, then you're not being your own testers. And also you should ask yourself, well, you know, why not? Why is that less convenient for us? I know that's like a part of like onboarding new people to a project, software project or what have you. And documentation is usually one of the ways to help people hopefully figure out things, you know, and I've seen a lot of teams talk about, well, we bring someone new in, we, you know, usually they're hopefully a competent developer. They're going to kind of generally know how to work with this type of platform. So we send them to our readme file and they'll work their way. And if they haven't hit any problems along the way, they can update the documentation at that point. But you're also like asking that person that's new to do that. And then, you know, they're kind of spinning their wheels trying to figure out things. So it's, it's been interesting, like seeing that. And one of the things that I've sort of been encouraging some of our clients to do is like, I'll ask them the question of, if I asked you to go and locally on your laptop, delete your application and all the dependencies related to it, and you had to start over and spin it up again, how much anxiety do you have? How much time are you going to lose? And, you know, I get different types of responses to that, but sometimes people are like, well, maybe a couple hours, maybe a day. And I'm like, that probably feels a little overwhelming. Like, have you actually tried following your documentation for getting your application up and running in a development environment, as an example, or how to, you know, follow step by step and see if there's any gaps so that your new person doesn't have to deal with that and wonder if they're doing something wrong? Yeah, that, that's such a great question. Yeah, it's like, and if, if that, if the answer to that is, oh, oh, you know, expletive, then that's a great indication that you haven't captured everything. That's a lesson that I learned the hard way with my PhD thesis. And the thing that I came out of that with was if it's not a single command, it's not automated, it's not reproducible, it's not maintainable. And so if you really want to capture your onboarding and, you know, make that documentation. And the thing is, you know, if it's going to take you half a day and you're familiar with it, how long is it going to take your, your customers or how long is it going to take the, the end users? And so my gold standard for the full thing is not only do you need to have the hello world for your application, but you need to have the Docker file script or the equivalent where it's like, okay, you, you get two pieces of information. One is some sort of reference container and the other is a single command that sets everything up and installs your software and runs a hello world successfully. And if you're not typing a single command that is, you know, Docker runs something, Docker build and run as an example, obviously any, any equivalent system, but right. If you're not capturing every single dependency, you really don't have a reproducible process to the point of like, oh, let's just have the new programmer on the team 
update the documentation. Well, you know, that's really sending a message that it's not something that we care about enough to keep current, probably because we don't have convenient systems for doing so. And also, that means maybe it'll be current for five minutes. (laughs) And then, you know, and then the very next build, you're back to the same situation. And three months later, the next person to join the team is doing the same thing with no lasting impact. In my company, we are usually taking over existing applications or joining existing applications that have been around for five, 10 plus years. And rarely do we see those scenarios where you have a nice little setup script or something that's just like run this one little thing. And then it kind of, for the most part, it seems to bring all your dependencies and get everything up and running and stuff like that. And so I think that's a good point because then you're otherwise you're asking people to re- run through a series of repetitive steps. And we're software developers. We know how to automate this stuff, right? So, I mean, we, that's a shell script at, at the very least, right? That you could maintain that. I think it's always that like, well, nobody has to set this up again for a long time until the next new person comes in or when someone gets a new laptop or someone upgrades their operating system and then deals with this all over again. And then those tasks somehow don't work anymore because there's some dependencies that don't work on your newest version of Catalina. Yeah, that's always fun. So let's talk a little bit about maybe some documentation best practices. So like, you know, there's knowing there's some of these good tools available. How do you even make decisions on when to do things that are like inline coding versus maybe something that's in a readme file versus something that's in maybe another location that kind of references things on kind of a more macro level? I think a huge distinction, and I, I feel like I feel like Kathy Sierra is the person whose books I learned this from, is really differentiating between reference documentation and learning documentation. When you are very familiar with a system or a library, then you just want the API reference docs. You just want to say, oh yeah, how do I call this function again? What do I need to pass to this? And so, you know, reference documentation is like the dictionary. It's really useful. You want to have it on your desk and it's you're going to use it, you know, many, many times a day, I realize I'm dating myself with that analogy, but versus, you know, if someone wants to learn English, you don't hand them a dictionary and say, good luck. But that's what we do with our software documentation. So like, oh, here's the API documentation. Good luck which is really not an effective way of having someone learn your software because it's it's just not designed for that. So I think the first step with any documentation project with any team is to sort of say, okay, what functions do we need this documentation to serve? And I think for me, the hello world, no matter how fancy, how advanced, how sophisticated your software is, I want to see a hello world. And I want that to be the minimum thing that shows me that then I can go do the fancy stuff with your API docs that I want to do. But if I can't get it started and running, then everything else is completely useless to me because I haven't been able to switch it on. And that's the part that's going to have the shell script or something to install everything. And, you know, just this, the hello world, I feel like it's the most commonly missing thing because it gets overlooked. And it's the first thing. It's the first step for anyone to, to look at your software or to do anything. So it's sort of the most important. And it looks very different than the automatically generated our spec docs, but they're both they're both important. They just have different functions. You mentioned like a API example there. So let's say there's some developers listening and they're responsible for API documentation. And the people that are consuming that API are maybe not internal peers, maybe they're external team, or even if it's an internal or external, it doesn't really matter. But if you're working on your documentation or you're saying it would be helpful to not only here's like the different um, endpoints you can connect to, you know, what what parameters it pass and what you can expect in response, but also here's how to initially talk to it. Should they also maybe have some sort of like hello world type of endpoint that they can communicate to send them something really basic back to at least let them know their connections working? 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Have something, you know, because one of the biggest hurdles is often the authentication layer as well. So if you have a public non-auth, some sort of endpoint that doesn't require auth, that's super helpful. And then with an endpoint that's just a hello world for testing the basic auth and not needing anything else, you know, and then a couple of bash scripts of calling those with curl, like that's going to solve so many problems of just, you know, give us some sort of common denominator that anyone can access, which is, you know, language agnostic and is just calling if it's a web endpoint, then just just use curl and show me how to do that. And that way I can answer my own questions from there. That's interesting. I think that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about that. And that doesn't seem like it would be a huge addition to add something like that. And I think about how often I see, you know, working with my own team and they're debugging some API problems. And you're like, well, let's get down to the basics. Like if we drop into curl, like is it the library that we're using that commits that we some open source library and is there a bug in it or some compatibility issue? Or is the API actually working or not? And their website says it's up, but can we prove that? You know, like just some of those basic little steps and so then we have to kind of like, well, what, what, how can we manually figure this stuff out? And there's not usually like a nice little here, copy and paste these few things just to like should give you a thumbs up on whether or not the, the API is even responding right now properly. Yeah, totally. And then obviously with APIs, you know, there, there's so many issues around cryptic error messages. And of course, you know, your users might be seeing an error message that your code's not even generating because you're not even hitting it to your point. You know, is it even working? Are we even talking to the thing that we think we're talking to? And yeah, definitely a little bash script with curl can go a hell of a long way there. Recent story myself, I was working with a junior developer that was debugging an API problem recently. And we had released a change, someone we had refactored some API client on our end. It got delayed on the deployment for a while, and then it got rolled out at some point, and then it stopped working. And then for whatever reason, our bug tracking stuff wasn't detecting this for a while. And then we finally figured it out. It had been like close to a month. And then we started looking and we're like, they were working with the the API support team trying to figure out the problem. And then at some point I was like, well, have we just reverted the change and see what's different and like compared the requests side by side? And they're like, no, we hadn't done that. And so we went and looked and like everything visually looked really similar. It was just like a weird little spacing issue in the new one that was happening and that somehow it was like hitting their endpoint and hitting a formatting issue that we wouldn't have detected without doing some sort of comparison. Anyway, it's just like a silly little API story there. Those things always catch me off guard and just being like, so silly how these things happen. You mentioned your PhD thesis and what was that on? Yeah, so I did a PhD in, in computational economics, and I was doing agent-based simulation, which involved learning Java, and then building simulations with thousands or tens of thousands or millions of little agents, which had their individual behaviors, and then we observed the emergent behavior of the whole system. And then it got me hooked on programming, so I did that after I finished my PhD. But I, I had realized very quickly that because the data I was analyzing was generated from my code, that every time I ran code, I would get a fresh batch of data. And so it really focused me on reproducibility and on automation, just from the sheer fact that you know, as soon as I learned something from my system, I would change, update the program, and then have to start all over. So I got really, really excited about automation, and I... You know, I, I didn't come from a software background at the time, although I, I had been dabbling in Rails. So I was sort of exposed to some practices and communication around testing and automation, which was then I applied that to my research. And that was really helpful. And then when I when I finished about a year later, someone asked me to sort of regenerate my thesis. And I realized that I couldn't because even though I had tried and, you know, so I'm someone 
I had studied math and economics and I was sort of self-taught as a programmer, but hadn't really been working as a programmer at the time. And I did my best. I, I, I really did my best to automate and make it reproducible. And I, I failed because when I tried, I realized, oh, I didn't have a reproducible process. And that's when I really learned that lesson. Like, oh, I didn't capture everything. And that's when I got the inspiration to start working on Dexy. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about that. So what prompted you to begin building it? So Dexy sort of came about when I realized that I had was not going to be able to reproduce my own thesis results. That really got me thinking like, okay, well... I had as much of a chance as anybody as a researcher to do this. So, you know, what are tools that I could build for other researchers to help support reproducible research? And sort of pulling that together, the sort of breakthrough I made in my own thinking around it was that in order to really do the thing right, we needed to have code, data, and prose. So our writing, all three of those need to be equally important in a tool. And so a software documentation tool is really the same thing as a reproducible research tool because they all have the same need, which is to, in a maintainable, updatable way to link the code you write, the data you run it on, and the message you write around it. It's the same problem whether that message is a research paper that's presenting results and putting the code in an appendix, or whether it's software documentation where the data is sort of an afterthought and the point is to talk about the software. Any of those things, it's the same process and, and the same tool will work for all those. What did you end up writing that in programming wise? I had just switched to Python at that point. So it was, it was a, it's a native Python tool that supports pretty much any programming language. You need to install Python to run it, but it's, you know, you've got, I think I was looking and you've got filters and tools for way more things than I could even think of. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And one of the big decisions I made early on was not only that it would be, you know, language, programming language agnostic, but also that it would be document format agnostic. And it's really, it's also then as a byproduct of, of all those decisions, it's also just a plain automation tool. If you want to use it, like you can run it just to run tasks in a way that recognizes dependencies. And, and if you don't care about the documents, that's fine. So it does all those things. And so any text-based document format Markdown or HTML or LaTeX or pretty much anything that can run with a command line interface, we can support. And then that will generate files that you can use for your man page or readme files or create PDFs and things like that as well? Yes, totally. So you can actually, Dexy will generate basically any type of document and any type of structure. You can use it to generate websites. You can use it to write a PDF book or just to generate a bunch of images that'll appear, just generate a bunch of, of graphs and plots and put them on a, on a website. So it's a really, yeah, it ended up being a very general purpose tool. What are some unexpected ways that you've seen it being used in the wild? I had hoped that people would use it to write books, and they have, which is great. I think one of the interesting things about Dexy is the the meta question of using Dexy to document Dexy usage, which is always a good test for any documentation tool is do that itself. It has been gratifying to see people use it for both research in terms of writing up the results of their analysis and also for software documentation. And so I think I think the pleasant surprise has been that people from all those different aspects of it have been interested in it. It's interesting. And my own curiosity, is there anything in there for dealing with like creating slideshow type things like like people ask me sometimes like, well, you know, I'm constantly needing to change some things in my, like some code snippets or something in my, my keynote or my Google slides or what have you. And 
Yeah, definitely. It's definitely has support for LaTeX Beamer, which is a, a PDF slide format coming from the LaTeX environment. I think one of the things that I that I, I would love to look at now that things are a lot further along than when I started is automating some of the, the Google Docs stuff, because I know there's some really cool new APIs coming out there. So yeah, there's definitely ways to do that. Oh, I th- I'm trying to think there was another, there was an HTML JavaScript type of slide tool that we also support it. I think there's a markdown, some markdown tools out there as well, which you can definitely use. One of the other use cases when I started as well was, you know, trying to write code blogs on on WordPress and trying to use a a WYSIWYG editor, which is not friendly, especially to white space sensitive code like Python. So there's a lot of filters there for, you know, just exporting via API calls. So that can be to WordPress or to Confluence or, you know, any sort of a a tool where you want to export HTML to an endpoint. Just a, as a confession to our audience, we've actually met before a long time ago, back in, I think it was 2006, we met at RailsConf Europe, it was, which is actually my first time to London. I think at the end of the conference, we met up for brunch. And you may or may not remember this, but after brunch at this place called The Breakfast Club, I remember, I remember this story because about 30 minutes after we had left, I realized I had lost my wallet. And I think we ended up walking back. And then we walked in, the people at the counter were like, Yay, you came back. We were waiting for you. And he immediately handed me my wallet and gave me a little pen that says the Breakfast Club on it. And so every time I go to London and I'm looking for a breakfast place, I always think about that morning because I lost my wallet. My very first trip to Europe and I lost my wallet, but I basically just left it on the counter. We'll be back with my interview with Anna in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher to help spread the word. And now back to our interview with Anna Nelson. So having followed you and known you for, you know, a little bit from, you know, through social media and stuff over the last 13 years or so, I've seen that you invested a lot of your time into a career change in improv. What prompted you to start getting into improv? Well, you know, the one thing they say about people who do improv is, you know, we absolutely hate talking about improv. Just kidding. We love talking about improv. I accidentally took an improv class just after I moved to the Bay Area. I had just read Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants, and she talked about how great it was to do improv. And I thought, well, I'm in a new city. I want to meet people. This sounds terrifying. Let's try it. And I signed up for an improv class and I loved it and I wasn't ready for it. And I knew I wasn't ready for it because there was a game you play called Big Booty where you have to say the right thing at the right time. And I got a perfect score in it, which is completely missing the point that the point is to get comfortable with failure. So I was not at that time ready to get comfortable with failure, but a year later I was. So I went back and took the class again and have been doing improv ever since. And a couple of years in started performing improv. And so, yeah, it has sort of taken over a lot of my life in a great way. (laughs) So you've been doing that a few years now. And how often are you performing now? Up to once or twice a month that we just have a run of three Thursday night shows of a French cabaret format called Demimond. That was a lot of fun. I have a Viking theme format called Grendel's Grinches, whose t-shirt I'm actually wearing. Yeah, so so definitely, you know, loving to get opportunities to perform and also using it, you know, improv once I started. One of the things that had had happened with, with Dexy was that Somehow, I don't understand how this happened, but Dexy didn't magically cause people to sort of start believing in science, even though I, you know, we now have 
reproducible research tools that can sort of show you the auditable link between code and analysis and a written research paper. And that somehow didn't magically (laughs) fix everything. And one of the things that, you know, improv really allowed me to play with in practice was around storytelling and around learning a lot about why we believe certain things and how to communicate things. So one of the areas that's really, really exciting that I'm excited to be exploring is using improv as a tool for science communication and as a tool, uh, both for, you know, for those of us who are trying to share, you know, and and documentation for programming is, you know, you're trying to share the story of what your software does. And so there's technical tools that we can learn to make that more correct and accurate and all that good stuff that we've been talking about. And then there's also, you know, okay, so now we know how to make it correct. How do we make people want to read it? How do we really share the story of what our, you know, if you're, if you're in science or research, how do you share the story of what your research is about in a compelling way? If you're a a programmer who wants someone to use your software, how do you tell the story of, of why they should use it, what problem it'll solve and, creating an, an inspiring and engaging narrative. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to be starting to do work with improv and sort of bring this whole picture together of, you know, tools to tell correct and accurate stories, along with the improv tools and the storytelling tools of telling a compelling and engaging story that's also correct, because you've you know used a good tool to build it. Right. And you talk, you know, you're touching on, it sounds like a little bit of like branding around your technology or what you're trying to convey and and storytelling is such a big part of that. So are you thinking that there's going to be a pathway for teaching software developers on how to better tell their stories in that path? Or do you see a career in this somehow? I do see a career in this, actually. Yeah, and I've I've had some, you know, just wonderful experiences teaching storytelling and to some community groups around the Bay Area. And you know, I think for for a lot of folks, you know, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome in in tech and and also out, outside of tech. And you know, one of the really interesting barriers is giving ourselves permission to sort of say, you know, what my story is interesting, my story is worth telling. And you know, that little software project you've been working on, like. Yeah, you know, maybe this is time to to share that with the world and tell the story of why you were moved to create it and why it's important to you. And that can be a maybe it's just a personal step and a personal process to get comfortable telling your story. And maybe it's maybe it's the start of a, you know, a big a big project or the next career step. So yeah, I'm just really thrilled to be starting to to offer, you know, classes and coaching and I've also recently started hosting a lecture series, which has been wonderful because I get to work with our our speakers who are scientists and get them comfortable sharing a little bit of their personal story along with the research story, which just, you know, that's that's a great formula to make it, you know, share a little bit about yourself uh, and why you created the thing you did. And that's going to make it so much more compelling to people about the what as well. So hypothetically speaking, there's a few people that are listening, I hope, that are software developers are in that realm of working on software on maintainable code. And they have very little documentation right now outside of maybe like a readme file. If there's like someone listening, they're like, well, actually, I do think we could probably benefit from improving some documentation, but I don't know if anyone on the team is going to use it or not. uh, So maybe it's not worth it. What sort of advice might you give them on how they might navigate that conversation with their peers if they're worried that it might just not get a little bit of pushback of like, well, you can just read the code or something. If you're on a team and everything is working great and you don't have a need for documentation, I mean, you know, maybe you're fine, right? But I think if you're asking that question, it's because you're aware that there's a pain point somewhere. Probably the the running assumption is that you're 
pain point is less painful than however much energy it would take to actually solve the problem. So I would say it's sort of a, a twofold thing. One is you can solve this pain point and documentation does not need to be a nightmare. It can be actually fun and just as satisfying as the rest of your programming if you've got the right tools to do it. And, you know, that that may be Dexy, that may be, you know, whatever, whatever makes sense for you. But I think what a good starting point is going to be, okay, let's start with, let's tell the story of our pain point And let's really start to, you know, there's some reason you're thinking about documentation. It's not just because you don't have anything else to do and you're twiddling your thumbs because we're all super busy and we're all juggling priorities. But there's some story there of, you know, why you think you need it. And I think exploring that story is a great first step because it'll, you know, probably the first thing you're going to do is just have a conversation about those pain points. And that in itself might be the most valuable thing to come out of a documentation process is not necessarily the end result, but the process of, you know what, actually, I was almost, you know, I almost didn't start using this because I couldn't get through the readme and I felt stupid and I felt this and that. And so talking and sharing and talking to users and talking to people who, who maybe took a look at your software and, and weren't able to get on board it and walked away, you know, those could also be great people so I think starting with that story to really clarify, and I think that does two things. It first of all clarifies your need and whether it's like, oh, wait, maybe this person just didn't know how to get at the resources in the right way. Or maybe it's like, you know what, we do have a problem. Let's tease it out. Let's let's tell the story. And then we have uh, some use cases to let us prioritize, you know what, we really need this hello world. Or we really need an explanation of what the use case for this feature is so people use it correctly or whatever that is. One of the things that I, I'm always encouraging, in particular like junior developers, but it's not necessarily specific, but when they're looking to figure out how could they start contributing to open source, and like I always feel like one of the best entry ways is like submit like readme pull requests, you know, and help improve the pull, re- you know, the, the readme file, or just the, the, the improve documentation. Like you're starting to use it. If things are confusing to you, don't assume that it's because you, as a maybe someone new to this industry, just doesn't understand something yet. But actually, like, how could you make this super simple for someone else to follow the steps or to make it maybe not multiple steps, but actually just have one step to do it? It's a good way to contribute. I think there's a lot of developers that get something and they create the code and they're like, oh, I want to share this. I'm going to throw it up on GitHub. And they're like, oh, yeah, I need a readme file. They put a few, you know, a couple of sentences in there and here's how to gem install it or whatever the language it is and toss it up there and like, cool, it's up there. A bunch of people use it. And then I can say that from my own experience, my story is I have a software project called Oh My Z Shell. And I found that by just inserting more of my own like goofy narrative into the readme file, which I didn't expect to necessarily get people to want to use it more, but I was just sharing some of me and personality as well in it, that people were very receptive to it. And I've had, I take pride in the fact there's a couple of screenshots of tweets I have from people who are like, this is the best readme I've ever seen. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't doing it for that. But I think it's, it's, think it's helpful to like invite people into your, into your, your project. And, and that's, it's an introduction point as well for people. So first impression of your piece of software, it doesn't need to be super sterile technical jargon. Yeah, I, I love all those points you've made there, both that a readme can be fun and engaging and also that contributing documentation is a great way for for junior developers to sort of get engaged with the community. And your experience of 
coming across a software project that you're curious about and not being able to figure it out, like that's such valuable feedback to share, especially if you can put it in the form of, okay, I finally figured it out. Here's what to do. And, you know, one of the other fringe benefits of writing documentation is similarly to sort of how test-driven development forces you to write better code so that it's easier to test. Once you start doing document automation, your code improves. And to your point of, you know, if it's just a gem install or just a simple, you know, command to get something started, great. And But often we find when you really write a proper hello world or readme that really takes someone through how to get it started, that is when you realize, wow, we have way too many steps to get started. We did not design this part of the API very well because, you know, we weren't focused on it because it's it's familiar to us. So another fringe benefit of, of documentation is really that you realize where you have to improve your code, especially if you're using an automation tool, because it really forces you to, to reckon with how many arguments you're passing to that function and how many other things have to be set up first and all that stuff when you're trying to automate that hello world. It's like, oh, this this is way too complicated. <laughs> There's a couple of things that I've been ruminating on and, and kind of encouraging my team here to do. And curious to hear some other people's thoughts on this is just even like some of the language we were using in documentation for like, I've always found it to be very like, here's a setup section and then there'll be details there or there's just different set blocks of sections. And I've kind of been thinking more like, it's kind of like you're expecting people to read these things like they're like chapter headings or section headings or something in a certain way. And I'm always... Rather than doing that, maybe flipping it around and turning it into more of an FAQ and using that as a reason to point out the questions you think developers probably should be asking themselves at about this point in the process or or questions you'd like to help reinforce things like, like, how do I run the test suite on this application? And then showing the command line versus like testing or or, or running tests to just more of like reminding people that there's like, how do you do this? Or how do I, what command do I run for this? Or where can I find information about this? Those are usually questions people have in their head. So rather than them having to translate the other way around, just turning it into more of like an FAQ style. And it's becoming this thing that I find myself doing in readme files, emails with potential clients and stuff like that. Like I'm just like anticipating the questions that I think they're asking themselves. Um, and then just trying to provide like a really simple format of a Q&A section and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's something you've seen elsewhere outside of just typical FAQ sections, but actually being a prime primary way of simplifying some of that. I think that's a great idea. I'm trying to remember if I've seen that in a particular case, but what it makes me think about if you're writing software documentation based on transclusion, which is, as we said earlier, you know, having examples written in a, you know, .rb or .py file or, or language, you know, code file, you can transclude those into multiple different documents that take different approaches. So you can have a good set of comprehensive examples. And once you've written those and run those, you can write multiple different documents that use those examples in different ways. So you can have like a really simple, hey, here's a really detailed step-by-step, very gentle, well-paced introduction for someone who's less experienced. And you can have the, okay, for the very experienced developer, here's the rapid fire, you know, really short and sharp intro. And that same example might, for someone, be a usage example. For someone else, might be a, here's how the code is written, you know, internal documentation example. So I think the more general thing, I, I love the idea of having those guided questions that that are hints of like, oh, you know, you should be running your test suite about now. But also, I think it's great to notice that like, you know, 
ideally, we might have a lot of different types of documentation for all the different potential consumers of our documentation and, and readers and participants, and even making it so that people can write their own documentation or contribute, you know, additional text uh, that could also be, you know, localization, for example, into different languages. So I think it's great to just say, you know, there's not necessarily one document. If you have live code examples, then it makes sense to have multiple narratives for different purposes, but they're all referencing the same code base. So they stay in sync and they stay updated. That's great. So I got a few last questions for you. Starting off, what non-programming book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? It's not necessarily a book, but it's a bunch of audible recordings. I really love Michael Drought's works. He is a medieval historian and his technical history work, he's the one who got me into Vikings. Uh, he's the one who got me into Anglo-Saxon history and that stuff. But he has a wonderful course on rhetoric is my absolute favorite. And in terms of writing documentation, if you have questions about language or grammar or how to make your documentation more poetic, I would strongly recommend going to your library or going to Audible and looking for it's a modern scholar courses by Michael Drought. And he's got Away with Words, one, two, three, and four. I think rhetoric is number four. They're all wonderful. And and any of the stuff he does, I think is fascinating. I've been curious about learning more and more about storytelling because I just can see how helpful it can be when I see other people do it and how they influence me. So I'm like, how can I get better at this myself? So I'm gonna have to definitely look that up myself. And I'll include links to that in the show notes. Where can people learn more about you and kind of follow when Anna is up to you on the on social media? I am at Anna Nelson on everything where I could snag that. So that that's my Twitter and it's A-N-A-N-E-L-S-O-N. My website's AnnaNelson.com and Dexy is Dexy.it is the website there. Well, thank you so much, Anna. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable to talk about documentation and all the different ways you can kind of approach that. My pleasure, Robbie. Great to talk to you. Thanks again. Oh, oh, oh.